cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, we're going to try something a little bit different, and I'll explain exactly what that is. I, I brought in a guest who really is kind of a cheat. He's an old friend, so experimenting really isn't uh, – I'm not out on a high wire without a net. I'm working with someone I know really well, so it, it allows me a little freedom to try something different. Look, the whole idea behind this show, the whole idea behind Masters in, in Business is that you're eavesdropping on a conversation between uh, at least two reasonably intelligent people having a thoughtful conversation about issues that are of significance. And what ends up happening, partly through my own paranoia and partly through a desire to be thorough and prepared, is that... We create a run of questions in five different segments, and each question leads to a different question, and what's supposed to be a conversation really becomes a, a bit of a Q&A. There are a small handful of you, a very small handful of you, that I know deep down inside wish that I would just shut the heck up and, and let the guests uh, speak, and, and that would be really boring for me to just sit here and read a list of questions. So for those of you who are hoping this episode is Barry reading questions and shutting up, I'm really sorry to disappoint you. In fact, this is the opposite. And instead of writing out, um, normally we do four, six, five, seven, and 12 questions for each of the segments. I just have really, really broad topics and Jonathan and I are, and by the way, my special guest this week is Jonathan Miller of Miller Samuel. I know him from Miller Matrix, his blog, as well as his podcast. What was that, like eight years ago I started? Uh, three years ago. Three years ago. It seemed much longer. How's he uh, Felix? That's right. Um, so, so this is going to be a little more informal, a little more conversational. And I'm actually recording this intro before... We do the show, so who knows how this is going to come out. But I wanted to try something a little different, and let's see how it how it rolls. So with no further ado, here is my conversation, and literally my conversation, with Jonathan Miller. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio, my special guest is Jonathan Miller of Miller Samuel. Jonathan is probably best known to fans of real estate as a appraiser extraordinaire. He now really 
uh, specializes not only in data crunching and looking at the analytics behind real estate, both residential and commercial, but also looking at the high-end ultra-lux uh, real estate here in Manhattan as well as around the country. Jonathan, welcome to Bloomberg. Oh, great to be here, Barry. So those of you who are real estate fans are certainly familiar with Jonathan's work. He is the engine that powers a number of real estate companies and agencies companies own, I shouldn't really call it internal data, but you're the driver behind some of the biggest names in real estate, the the glossy brochures they put out with all the, all the data that's there. <laughs> well, the key word there was glossy, I think, but... Uh, no, I uh, for 22 years, my myself and my firm Miller Samuel, we have published or crunched numbers for the big real estate brokerage firm in New York uh, called Douglas Solomon. Uh, Douglas Solomon is the fourth largest residential real estate company in the country, uh, after all the big franchises, the 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 cast of characters, uh, and the idea behind it is that. I can speak independently of them, you know, that they know that I know what I'm talking about and it's been a great relationship for 22 years. I basically speak in my mind about what's happening in the housing market. And they're happy to hear the unvarnished truth and let the chips fall where they may. Yes. And and you would think that more companies would be like that because the whole, they're a transaction-based business. Mm -hmm. So instead of pulling wool over somebody's eyes and saying everything's fantastic, you can help your client navigate a market that is, I'm sure it's a lot like the financial markets in that regard of, of you know, strategies and thinking. And some people do very well in down markets. I spent the better part of the mid-aughts mercilessly mocking the National Association of Realtors, <laughs> better known as NAR, for their always cheerful reports. And it was just a constant... It's always a great time. It still time. is. It, it less so, but it's still there's still a uh, a sunny side as the right. as the uh, the the current um, chief economist is nicknamed Sunny Sunny Yoon. <laughs> but Lawrence just, Yoon, right? Is that his name, Lawrence Yoon? Uh, yes. I, I recall the infamous um, material they put out called "It's Always a Great Time to Buy or Sell a House," and I think all of Wall Street laughed at that because, well, look, it's either a good time to buy something or a good time to sell something. Right. But it can't be a good time to buy or sell something unless you're the guy getting the commission on, on the sides. transaction. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. So so that was um, that was their reputation. You're actually telling us that not every real estate agency follows that. Form. Yeah, I mean, you know, they are in the selling business. Uh, NAR, you know, do, certainly does a lot of good things for their members, I'm sure. But it is a trade group. Nothing you can mention, I'm sure, but I can't really think well, maybe of anything. Nothing I, I know, but listen, uh, my mother was a real estate listen, agent, I'm giving, so this was dinner table. I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt, right? But <laughs> but uh, but you know, I I think the whole idea of um, conveying look the consumer has everything in their fingertips right so you could search for anything you want on zillow or trillia the, you can go to all these websites you can find a mortgage you could find a house you could do a practically a fly-through of just about any house I, you I want i think the i think the the larger picture is that 
the role of the real estate brokerage company or agent is no longer the gatekeeper. And I think that that's that sentiment or mentality that still exists in some some firms that you know we don't we don't want to be completely open because we want to control the transaction. And uh, yet the consumer now has access to virtually everything, but they still need guidance. What's really amazing is during periods where you have significant housing demand, tight inventory, you see a lot of startups that, hey, we're going to replace the broker. But the second that the market turns, all those companies go under and uh, all of a sudden everybody needs handholding again. So we have this this sort of up and down cycle that we see as markets go up and down. There are some really broad and fascinating questions I want to get to in a little while. But before we do that, uh, multiple listing service was at one point in time that gatekeeper that actually had all the data and it was unique to them. But once that went online, and not only is it MLS dot for us, it's MLS.li.com, but it's whatever right. your local region is. And there are hundreds of them. Right, hundreds of versions of it. And everyone from Redfin to Zillow to Trulia to you name it seems to pull that data into their yes. web page. So it all comes pretty much from the same database. But still, there are things that real estate agents know that you can't get from that in terms of what are the schools like. I mean, you could look at a ranking, but that's not the same as actually knowing a neighborhood. Talking somebody that has experience in the neighborhood and talks to it. What's interesting, though, is there's a study that just came out. And it was, uh, uh, forgive me, I don't recall the three markets they tested. But uh, it was a study that just came out recently uh, that showed that even MLS data, which is supposed to be very clean and neutral, mm-hmm. uh, is biased high. Uh, the the pricing is biased high. In in H- other how words, how is it biased high? That, I mean, that it, the it's infer- showing what the listing price is, and and also you know if it closes, the agent uh, will close the 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 uh, the price and report what it is. Mm-hmm. But that number they found in something like eight percent of the cases was a high number. It was higher than the what actual the actual, actual price was. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Jonathan Miller of Miller Samuel. He is an expert in real estate transactions and appraisals, both here in Manhattan and around the country. So Jonathan, let's talk a little bit about some of the new rules that have come out over the past couple of months that have really caused a stir. The two I'm thinking of in particular the Consumer Financial Protection Board rules about a waiting period on a mortgage uh, were introduced last fall, and that caused a lot of ruckus. And then just recently, the Treasury Department came out with new anti-money laundering rules, even for cash transactions of real estate. Let's talk about why these rules are here and what impact they're having uh, on the housing market. Well, the uh, the the Treasury rule is a temporary rule that is uh, starting March first, and it's supposed to last six months. And the idea is, uh, or came about from a New York Times front page story in early 2015 called Towers of Secrecy. Oh, sure. This and was, it was a huge, huge article yes, about people hiding money correct. via real estate. Right. Louise Story was, uh, I believe, uh, the, was one of the authors at the Times. And it was a very uh, well-written, 
a big piece with lots of uh, lots uh, of data, lots, lots of, of data, but also lots of visuals on the web and all. You know, it was very compelling stuff. And and the takeaway was they didn't really link. Uh, it said yes. Do people do wealthy people that buy high end apartments for all cash? Are some of them? doing something they shouldn't do. And I think the inferred answer is yes. And I think any reasonable person would assume that, right? When you say doing something they shouldn't do. So so what, what a benevolent dictator rating rating their treasury at the in the home country and buying a twenty million dollar condo, parking it there for a rainy day. Gotcha. Uh, uh you know, a, a drug dealer, some anything illicit where you don't you don't want to be traced. So that's the logic. Um, the problem is, uh, there wasn't, there's no proof that this is a widespread problem. I don't have any personal knowledge one way or the other, just basically on the street. It's something, it's not something that people just sort of brush aside and say, let's ignore it. It just isn't something that ever comes up in conversations. And so there's all kinds of implications or problems with, with going this route, um, uh, in terms of, look, if you're, if you're a billionaire, and mm-hmm. you're buying a home in Manhattan, a pied de terre, uh, for your family. Uh, first, you fill out a mortgage application, <laughs> right? So, so that individual, first of all, doesn't need a mortgage. <laughs> Secondly, they don't want the hassle of that, and just and the third is privacy or security. You know that they, they become a target. This is a you know I I'm all for transparency up to a certain level. But if I recall correctly, the Times story had a thing about a number of Corporate entities, and some are here, and some are in the Caymans. LLCs. And they were essentially set up not to hide income from the IRS, but for exactly what you're talking about, to to hide who the owner is, to prevent... Right, safety... uh, And security and 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 and, and also, too, um, you know, one of the... You know, the LLC um, has been used quite a bit in, in... In fact, I believe the Times article and some other things I've read, that at the high end of the market, about half of the transactions are... LLC have an LLC of some form within them, and I've I've seen that in other housing markets as well. That's you know, amazing at the high end of the market. Land sales in the Hamptons, uh-huh. about a third of those last year uh, were either on the buy side or the sell side had an LLC associated with them. So, so, so let me ask you a related question because you we referred to benevolent dictators, but but sometimes it's not such a nefarious situation. I'm in Vancouver pretty regularly. I, I speak at a conference there every year, or at least I used to until that conference ended. And they have what are called see-through uh, condos and see-through towers. There are these residential high-rises. They're glass. They're completely empty. You look. You could literally, you're on the highway, you drive by, you see right through them, but they're fully sold yes. and unoccupied. And I asked a couple of real estate people there, and they all told me the same thing. These are Chinese people who still live in China, but need to get some money out and kind of create a life raft in case things right. get a little hairy in China. In other uh, words, is a, this similar? A, yes, it's the same thing, a, a, a same application we have here. Uh, many of the newer newer projects that are being built, especially at the high end of the market, are what we call bank safety deposit boxes. Right. You put your valuables in there, right. and then you rarely visit. Right, and so, so it's a it's an interesting. Do you need two keys simultaneously <laughs> to open it? Or? I think that's for nuclear warheads. Oh, okay. But uh, what what? So there's so on one hand, there's no there's no evidence 
that it's um, that it's a you know a, a widespread problem. But on the but there's no evidence that it, it is you know one or the other there isn't the problem I have with with this as a as a device to uh, capture money laundering is that what you end up doing is basically throwing a wet blanket over an entire real estate asset class for right. perhaps a few bad actors and, and we don't know if it's two percent one percent zero we don't know we don't we don't know what that is but the but the the downside to that is this only applies to properties three million and above in new york county in manhattan right. and one million dollar properties in miami the city of miami that's it well it miami does, is understandable because well, that's all miami vice drug dealers right well that was the 80s right, right. No, that was the, that was uh, that was sort of pastels the, and cocaine cocaine and, cowboys the, right. the, the whole movie of yep of, i remember that. So, so isn't the, that a little odd that it's just two places in the whole country? Right, and and so here, here, you know, the the big thing that uh, that sort of was a red flag for me is that this is only a six month rule. So you're encouraging people to not do transactions for six months. Six months because all they're going to do is wait, right? So, but you, they have the option to renew. If this was a widespread, deep problem that the Treasury Department suspected, why would it be a six-month rule? It would be a forever rule. Uh, it's not logical otherwise. So so I think because of the sort of political or peer pressure um, to do something about it when there was this front-page New York Times story last year – and hey, this is low-hanging fruit for you know money laundering. Let's you know let's let's look at this. Are I, you saying this is really in the last minute we have in the segment? Is this really just an optics issue, looking for a problem, or or I, that's what I that's what I believe because of the six-month timeline. It doesn't make any sense to me. You know, normally my knee-jerk reaction isn't to react against regulation. Usually, when there's regulation, you assume it's there for a good reason. You're saying that's not the case here. That's that's the way it looks. And and so what it ends up doing is you have a high-end housing market that's weakening because of overbuilding. Big Bloomberg article last week saying that has the uh, the high-end lux market in real estate peaked? And the, the article concludes it has. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Jonathan Miller. He is the co-founder and CEO of Miller Samuel a high-end residential appraisal and data crunching shop. You know, you and I have been going back and forth over the years about the Case-Shiller numbers, which are reported on a little bit of a lag, but they're still, I think, pretty interesting numbers. But they run into the same problem that much of residential real estate comes into, which is the data ain't all that great. So... With Case Schiller, it's interesting. Um, I don't know about you, but when you get up in the morning, do you take the look at the average temperature from six months ago, and that's what you use as a basis to get dressed? I, I see. Was it raining six months ago, and then I bring an umbrella? Right, right. So, so the problem with Case Schiller is it was never designed for consumer consumption. It was designed for Wall Street to hedge housing. The problem is, is that it's a, housing is a slow moving process, and when you get a number. A case Shiller number released today, the meeting in the minds between buyer and seller on that data occurred six months ago, five to seven months ago. So let's let's put that into context. So data's released on January, whatever. So the data that came out this month 
occurred in August before Labor Day. So how Meaning that's when the transaction took place. Right. Which means the offer and acceptance and contract was probably a month or two before that. So it's really No, no, no. No. It's it's that's when the con- that's when the contract occurred. Okay. And, and and the transaction was when? The would be 2 months, 3 months later. Um, so January we get November data reflecting a contract from August. Something along those lines? Exactly, except that the November data is the average of November, October, and September. So it's even more blended. And that's why there's really no seasonality that shows up in a Kishler line. It's right. a nice bell curve for the housing crash. But that that is sort of you know, one one. It certainly um, the consumer doesn't understand that as a reason. As and and I think that the Case Shiller uh, reliance on Case Shiller, nothing against Robert Shiller, Nobel laureate, and all that, is that it was a reaction to the misinformation or spin coming out of uh, NAR, which was sort of the big provider with the existing home sale report and all that is still widely published, right. but there's some concerns about that. And yep. by the way, we had Schiller on the show and he talked about the uh, thinking behind case Schiller and the, the report was, Hey, how can we find a way for people who want to hedge real estate exposure to do that? Right. There was no trading transactionable uh, way to do that, the Case Shiller Report, in theory, was supposed to generate that. Except for, you know, these startups like Zillow can actually accurately project what the next Case Shiller number will be within a few tenths of a point. They've reverse engineered it that They've reverse well. engineered so it doesn't matter. The other bigger problem I have with Case Shiller in any price index is that, to me, pricing in housing is the is the caboose on the transaction uh, train, so Why to do you speak. say that? That is it. Vo- what matters more is it volume? Is it shape? Is it amount of cash versus mortgages? It's sales. It it's spread sales from high tra- end to low end. Sales transactions. Uh, we found. Uh, I was with a, a startup uh, that was going to compete with Kishiller a while back before the the uh, the stock market crash, and what we found was you that you say that you were with, you were an advisor to uh, Radar Logic at which the time ended up getting bought by oh, no no they was ended the other up, one that got bought yeah they ended up going under uh, but you were also with Trulia. Which went, on their advisory board merged with Zillow, Zillow, they went public, and that's been a home run. Exactly, but the but the the problem with transact or the problem with pricing as a as an indicator is that we found nationally it lags uh, the sales activity by twelve to fifteen months. Here's here's a perfect scenario: South Florida, two thousand five, mm-hmm. housing prices are going up, and at the greater full ther- full theory is in full play, where sales activity is falling because affordability is going through the floor, and you have fewer and fewer people to buy the next flip. And we saw that nationally in 0506. Housing peaked in volume in 05, but it didn't peak in price. Until the summer of 06. It, so as sales are falling, prices are still rising. Right. And they don't fall until there's no more buyers left that will, or the greater fool, right? There's right. no buyers left that'll pay. So I feel like emphasis, I'm not saying that you should ignore price trends or indexes. That's what people understand. Well, watch volume first. I, it's a it's ahead of pricing and 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 the interaction with inventory. So in the last minute we have in this this segment, we had mentioned previously the MLS data was pretty dirty as well. It wasn't updated, and sometimes it seemed to be misrepresented by agents. 
How significant is that, and and what can a buyer do to make themselves more? So I, I think it's less of a problem than it appears because it's a random problem. In other words, I don't think it impacts trends. I okay. think it's it impacts specific references to properties that. That in and of itself is a problem, but from a trend, if you're trying to understand whether the market is rising or falling, I don't I don't think it is. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Jonathan Miller, and we have been discussing real estate, both the regulatory side of it and some of the data reporting problems. Now let's get into the fun stuff. Let's talk about the crazy expense of houses, apartments, and, and various numbers that are just eye-popping. I know here in Manhattan, there have been a few hundred million dollar units. There's a there's a hundred million dollar unit that closed. There's a, Bill Ackman bought a $93 million, but he got a deal. That is uh, a deal. He got 7 million off the hundred. Well, no, no, it wasn't that. His price per foot was about 3,000 a foot less than the $100 million sale, and he's up on like the 93rd or 94th floor. It's a different kind of unit. Have you been in that build, that unit? That Not building? that unit, no. But, but I've you've been... pretty much been in uh, – you and I have talked about oh, this yeah, many yeah. times. You've been in just about every major yeah. penthouse in Manhattan. It's like, it's, like a, it's like a work bucket list. Like I want to be in the penthouse of – you know the Sherry Netherland Hotel, or or uh, the eighty-eight million dollars Sandy Weil, or but other than a handful of them, you've pretty much walked your way through. Most oh yeah, of these. yeah. I've been in about eight thousand Manhattan apartments <laughs> in my career, which is probably more than I uh, should admit. Um, but but it's interesting because uh, there's actually right now it's probably more than a rumor, but there is a $200 million contract right now. In Manhattan. Uh, at 220 uh, Central Park South, the new development for Verna that Vernado is building right mm -hmm. on the park. Um, I just read uh, yesterday that there is right now a $110 million contract in the Hamptons. Uh, That's it's a big a, house. It's a flip. And it, what do you mean a flip? Well, it, they went in, they painted it, they made it pretty. Well, or someone bought it. Someone bought it like a couple of years ago for in the '90s, and then I guess they decided it wasn't wasn't they, for them. Whatever, yeah, didn't have enough space. But it, but it's interesting because um, we didn't, and so I, I actually, as a hobby, mm -hmm. track actual closed transactions of all sales. In the U.S., fifty million or above. How many of those? How many? How many actual transactions? Uh, are we something talking? in the order of uh, sixty. So uh, not a lot. This is really a unique. Oh yeah. One-off market. Oh yeah, and a big part of that that it comes out of New York. Uh, right. And and I embarrassingly look, and so. I also <laughs> play around a little bit looking around the world. There was just a sale in Paris for three hundred one million. That's a bit uh, three hundred one in yes. Paris. Yes. Wow. So 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 now that we've gone 93 110 300 I have to ask you about this 500 hard to fathom <laughs> you know where I'm going. Yeah. There's a spec house being built supposedly in LA yep. for 500 million dollars. Now is that a real number or are these people just making stuff up at this point? You know, I think it's so I yeah, you know, I think uh, they they probably feel strongly about it and I'm sure it's expensive to build but uh, not half a billion to build. It's not <laughs> right. a. It's not a hundred story skyscraper. No, no, no. It's, it's a, it's a house on a thousand. It's a house on on a hill. Yes. Uh, so, so you know, I think that'll end up probably being you know uh, like a corporate retreat or something outside of a single family residence. No, okay, that makes sense. But, but I, but I think it 
it begs the question, is there a real market, say, north of $100 million? Right. Is this a – because that's been – you know, you, you certainly read in the news. There's Over the last couple of years, across the U.S., there have been these press releases. Hey, I'm putting my market on. Uh, Jeff Green, the hedge funder that sure. bet right on the market um, you know, the, the last down cycle. Uh, he built a, a house in uh, Los Angeles that is on the, was on the market for 195. It sat for 18 months. Reduced. He, he dropped <laughs> it to a much more reasonable 149 million, and he said, "This time, now I'm serious." And then he took it off the market. Right. Uh, so, so the question is, does this market actually exist? And my theory is that the market actually was triggered. By this, the $88 million sale in 2012 mm-hmm. by Sandy Weil, where he arbitrary you know, his he bought it for 41. He, you know, a couple of years fixed late, it up. No, well, you know, he fixed new it up. New paint, but, new carpet. That's got to be worth 30, 40 million dollars. And then he dollars. put it on for 88. And then a Russian oligarch came in and just uh, said, and I'll sa- take that one. I'll take that. But as it turned out, he was going through a divorce and he was buying property and hiding right. assets. He didn't care the- what he was paying. He just was moving Right. But that became a symbolic price. And so shortly after that, and it really was like a three-year window, 12, 13, 14, where we started to see all these press releases from you know, high end. And we're seeing uh, in Man- Manhattan, all these penthouses priced at 100 above. Uh, look, I'm not saying these Manhattan prices, penthouses won't get these numbers. But I, I think that this market was really, there was a misperception of whether it was actually a market and not just random one-off transactions. It's so funny you say that I've spent the better part of the past five years arguing with people who have been consistently calling a market top, look, it's a bubble in name your one-off. It's a bubble in art, therefore the market has to roll over. It's a bubble in vintage collectible Ferraris. Therefore, the market has to roll over. And the answer to these things are, how many people are buying a Giacometti or a Picasso or name your artist for $100 million? How many people are looking for this specific Le Mans raced 275 Ferrari GTB from 1961 or 62? That's a unique creature. And someone who has more money than they know what to do with says, I'll pay $30 million for that, even though it's barely worth a million or two. Right. It's a one-off. It's a and one-off. you can't draw a concussion. Are you saying real estate I, I'm has a similar you, I, thing I'm on I'm saying the high when end? you get to that extreme, that that's what it seems to be. It's not that you won't have those transactions. Going forward, we absolutely will, and there will be you know a steady procession of them. But I don't... At least we saw on the spec houses built across the country. I like to say the plural of anecdotal is not data. Of course. So, but what the these developers that are building these houses are saying is, look, they're they're asking this price, and there's 20 people asking this price. It must be worth it. Yet none of them ever sell. Well, that that what it does is it creates an anchor. And when you hear 70 and 80 and 100 often enough, you know, for $25 million, this looks pretty reasonable. Right. Maybe maybe that's what the net effect is, that yeah. in the lower end of the high market, uh, you know, all things considered, $26 million. For it's a, a deal. Four. Right. It's a, uh, so now let's go to the opposite ends and talk a little bit. You brought to my attention the micro, micro apartments yes. that are being proposed as a way to combat the affordability problem right. in cities like New York. What is that about? So- so much is made in in the city. Uh, certainly, uh, I'm a user of the terminology price per square foot, and <clears throat> but 
ultimately, when you get to a small apartment like a in Manhattan, uh, say a studio or a Boston studio, You're talking four hundred square feet. The average the average uh, studio in Manhattan is four fifty square feet. Uh, my parents have a pied de terre in the city that's three hundred square feet on a good day. Right. And in uh, the two, so it's a kitchen, bathroom, and a, a bedroom. And right. That's it. My sister and I call it the kitchen because it's <laughs> mostly a kitchen with a couch on the side. Right. Uh, but but there are thousands of those units already in existence. So it isn't about whether the market will accept micro units, which are about usually about 325 square feet. Um, uh, it isn't whether there will be acceptance because we already have a long storied history of people living in 300 square foot apartments. It's the pricing. And so what we're seeing, uh, what we're starting to see in the micro unit phenomenon, remember land, the land, the person selling the development site doesn't care what they're, they're just looking at what the maximum um, value they can get for the land, which usually implies you're going to build a super luxury condo or a, you want to max out, you want right. to optimize your return on a dollar invested, at least from a business perspective, from a policy perspective. There are counter arguments to having a variety of income and making keeping housing correct. And one of the biggest problems that New York has right now is that we're seeing record job growth, uh, the highest number of employ uh, uh, those employed in the city in history, and we have this disconnect between what new housing we're building and what we actually need. And a lot of that has to do with um, uh, the price of land. So in the case of micro units, what's really fascinating is, and you can see this in the regular rental market, traditional rental market, and the uh, sales market, is when a an apartment gets to a certain price, down to a certain price point, whether it's a rental or purchase, mm -hmm. no matter how much smaller it is, it doesn't the price doesn't go down anymore. Because you're paying for common areas and lobby. And well, what you see is the price per square foot skew up at the bottom right. because the price won't go below a certain number in a certain market. So what's why, happening- Why is that? Is that is that common areas? Is that taxes? What what puts the floor it's, on that? It's, it's, it's the seller, what the sellers are willing to sell for, basically, or, or What they need to get in order to make to, the To cover their worthwhile. operating costs right. for the building. What's interesting about the micro phenomenon, and um, uh, a friend of mine runs a, a website that's going to launch called Neighborhood X, and they did study in Boston, and um, and I believe there's one coming out in New York, and the price per foot of a micro unit in terms of what a consumer will handle is actually 50 to 100%, 100% higher than, say, a traditional sized rental. So in other words, the price per foot is significantly higher. So say in New York on a studio, say it's 800 a foot, a micro might go for 1600 without a problem, but it's, you hmm. know, it's much smaller. Quite fascinating. So if people want to find you, what's the best way they can track you down on Twitter two, or on the web? The two best ways to reach me, Twitter, number one, which would be uh, Jonathan Miller. And Clever. It was, you know, original. I was an early adopter. And then the uh, the second is our website, which is millersamuel.com, which has lots of data and information. If you find that you enjoy this sort of chat about things finance uh, related, you can look up an inch or down an inch on iTunes and see the other 75 or so uh, conversations of this sort that we've had. Be sure and follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business. 
on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, this has been a, a fun and interesting approach. So so you've done both the long-winded questions written out and this kind of free-form version. Uh, what, what What's my takeaway from doing it this way? Oh, free-form is the way to go. See, I don't know if I could do freeform with a guy like Howard Marks or Leon Cooperman right. who are so fastidious and organized and I think you're just going to have to do it case by case. I guess. It's or maybe certain segments you wing it and certain segments you have it I'm laid a big out. fan of no preparation. Well, it's so. not so much no prep. So <laughs> let me let me qualify this. There's a difference between no preparation. Right. And so uh, literally, Mike Batnick is my head of research. So just as an example, the next podcast after you is Ethan Harris. He's the chief economist of Bank America Merrill Lynch. Right. I don't think I could sit down right. with someone like that and say, yo, man, what's going on? <laughs> so what's happening in, uh, right. in the world of economics? Anything good going on? Right, right. But with you, I know I could say, what up with housing? And you off right. to the races. We, You and I could talk about this stuff. We could talk well, about I'm, I'm sure your wife says the same thing as my wife is, you know, they, you know, or my kids will say, uh, you know, can you stop talking? And, uh, and my answer is, no, you should hope I don't stop talking. <laughs> it depends if you want to eat tonight. If right. you want to eat tonight, you're okay. Exactly. So before I forget, I'm going to set up initializing video stream. I'm going to just do a quick, uh, I'm just going to do a quick Periscope, Periscope. with Jonathan Miller. Uh, and we're talking about real estate. So, um, and this will run this weekend, which will be uh, fun yeah. and exciting. So we, we covered four really interesting subjects during this show. So the new treasury rules about $3 million apartments in New York and a million in Miami. Um, they're anti-money laundering rules. We talked about why Keishila data is so problematic. We talked about the ultra lux um, $100 million and up market. $500 million. <laughs> <laughs> And then we talked about... The micro apartments. But by the way, you mentioned the $300 million apartment or unit in, in Paris. Right. outside, that, Just outside of Paris. Was that before or after the the terrorist attacks? Uh, I think it was after. I think it closed. That's an interesting vote of confidence. I think it closed in December. And, and I what was, is a $300 million It place? looks like a palace. Like Versailles. It's, it's that sort of it, thing. Actually, that's the architecture. Oh, really? Yeah, it's meant to. And, and it was interesting because I thought there would be this insane world interest on it, but it, no. there really wasn't. And you would think Europe is far more concerned with income inequality and yes. and, and a level playing field. It was field. a Middle Eastern buyer uh, well, and a Middle Eastern developer. Really? Yeah. Wait, so this is a new development. This isn't like well, a 200-year-old castle. No, no, no. This is a new – I believe it's all newly constructed – but it looks like a castle or a so palace. like Versailles or something yes. like that. So how many acres is this, and how many square foot feet is the? Do you recall uh, any of I that? don't. I I want to say a hundred thousand square feet. That's uh, big. And fifty acres, but I'm guessing. But it, it's substantial. There's a lot of land. So that's three thousand dollars a square foot. That's pretty pricey. Yeah, actually, when you look at the very high end of the market, uh, yeah. no matter what the land amount is, they. They tend to they tend to fall within like the two twenty five hundred to four thousand a foot. The, the variation is the size of the land, right? So now, so let's let's keep talking a little bit about the Lux 
end of the market because it's so to me it's so lux um, or mega ultra super <laughs> so so here's what i find fascinating uh, and in my let's start from the bottom up because that's how most humans interact with real estate so when you think about real estate i think about and everything tends to be a chain because you have to sell this house to buy that house yeah or, i believe there's an average of seven transactions that are linked in one home sale so so up and the, down in the united states we'll start with the starter home right so uh, you buy a starter home which used to be 250 or so depending on where you are in the country not in the u.s not in here in this area but in the u.s i mean the average is 250, 250. yeah so a starter home is 75 90 somewhere in that range probably yeah 100 a around here a starter home is if you can find a place for three four that's a relatively inexpensive yes. home in the new york area but the person selling that house is trading up to something Maybe it's a, they're going from a two or a three bedroom to a four bedroom with right. a couple extra baths. So now we're in the half a million to seven hundred thousand. Or they're just range. trading up to a better location, better for okay, the same, same size and every a better school district. But I'm trying to come yeah. up with a different strata. So so assuming variables like location, water view, etc., uh, aren't a key consideration. Although I imagine somewhere in the chain that probably isn't the case. Those do become key. Yes. issues but so you go from starter home to little bigger three bedroom two bath or four bedroom two bath and around here that's five six seven and then from seven to uh, nine you're talking about a four or a five bedroom house maybe you're on a, a a half acre of land right um probably a better school district maybe an easier commute that's right. the other thing i notice obviously the closer you are to major sources of employment the more expensive it is. And also uh, commuter lines, you know, are, are a big factor. Uh, just as a, an aside, I'm dating myself, but I moved out of the city, my wife and I, in 1990, and we moved to Fairfield County, Connecticut, and there's an express stop on the commuter train in Stamford, Connecticut. After Stanford moving away from the city, every 10 minutes on the commuter train, housing prices dropped $100,000. Really? That's yes. amazing. Comparable houses? Yes, houses. yes, because we were actually looking at the time um, when we first moved out there, and it was unbelievable. Ten, is that still true today, that, that ratio? Or? It, uh, the, the progression is, but the numbers are much higher. I can imagine. But, but it was about 100000 every 10 minutes. So, you know. So I, I'm out on Long Island. When you look at the major train lines, the most desirable train line is the Port Washington line, which really is the, the north shore of Long Island is a series of peninsulas. Right. And so the first peninsula is, is the Port Washington line. The next peninsula is actually in between that. The third peninsula is the Oyster Bay line, which passes by the second peninsula. It's the same thing. The further out you go, the more expensive also, it is. Also, too, on the commuter lines, or it, it's also the, um, uh, you know, whether you're on a main line, which there's a premium for that in so my market. So you don't market. have to change. You could get an express. You could go and right And also, the, you know, the, the spurs on a commuter line are the ones that tend to have more problems because there's only one track and they can't go around. The other thing, too, is like when, when you're talking about Long Island is um, – and, and this is a an interesting – when you look at the Hamptons, the luxury market to the east end of Long Island. That's South Shore. You have Montauk one highway. Line. Yep. Right, and and, and and one train line. And one train line, and this congestion. It's it's uh, you know very difficult to get out there. Yeah. So they're trying to preserve the character of the area, but not having it overbuild. 
but they're still building like crazy. So well, that's it, why you just helicopter out, right? Just go over the traffic. Yes. Like, don't these plebes know anything? Yet? I. But travel by car. Yeah. That's. We'll talk about cars in a little bit. <laughs> but before we get to cars, so I mentioned seven to nine is now you're talking five bedrooms. Then somewhere in the nine to a million to about a million and a half, you're looking at bigger houses. The land st- starts getting bigger. Two acre zoning, things right. like that. But now, how does this break down above $2 million? Is, is there a gradation or is it just uh, the, bigger, whatever, all these accoutrements and people just charge what they can I, get away I th- with? I think I think another way to look at it is um, the bigger the logical step is as you move up in price, mm-hmm. the bigger the sort of change in amenities or not the big, just the, you know, whether it's square footage or land size, the, the jumps get further and further apart. Less bang for the buck for each. A up, simpler, upgrade. a simpler scenario would be just to, for the listeners is if you're in Manhattan and you have a studio and then you right. trade up to a one bedroom, uh, uh, make these numbers up. Maybe it's, maybe it's 30% more. And then you trade up to a two bedroom and it's double. And then you trade up to a three bedroom and it's triple. And then you trade up to a four bedroom and it's, you know, exponential. So, so, so you're not just paying for the extra bedroom. You're paying for bigger all around square footage, nicer amenities, a location, you know, school district, all those sorts of things. But the problem in a market and this is this is this is the problem right now with the housing market and why there's so much talk about affordable affordability and affordable mm-hmm. housing is that the vast majority of people that have a lot of equity in their home or not I don't want to say vast majority but certainly many many yeah uh it's called money on paper because if Unless you can't you're, sell it and trade up. Right. Or it, even make a lateral move mm-hmm. because maybe your credit score is Or downsize. Because credit matter. conditions are tighter than they were. Well, there were no credit standards uh, <laughs> during the housing bubble. But it's it's still skewed very tight. There's many people that can't make a lateral move or downsize or trade up. It's uh, <laughs> They're kind of stuck. And, and part of the problem is to be able to jump to the next level as your family grows. And- as there, as everything was rising in price, you know, you can look at it as percentage, but if you look at it as dollars, the dollars are spreading, right? And 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 that's been part of the challenge, this sort of trade up uh, of of consumers when they're moving from one uh, one home to the next size. I'm going to kill the periscope just so everybody. Uh, this is what it it looks like here in the studios. And, uh, Show my uh, candy or no? <laughs> that's right. That's that's from the the Bloomberg uh, cafeteria. Yep. Um, and I'm gonna so much for that. Um, so so that's kind of fascinating. You know, I, I love playing with the various apps. So people should realize this. Jonathan and I. Jonathan comes from Connecticut. I come from the North Shore of Long Island. We take our boats. We meet in the Long Island yes. sounds. And neither of these are yachts. These are just mid-size work a day 20 footers right we tie up we have a couple of beers we except enjoy for the mine sun. has a bathroom so um i have a bathroom well uh, I, have, I have a small head not that i use it but right. uh i'm in both in both senses but it's uh <laughs> and I, I was thrilled when i discovered my marina has free pump out services there you oh go. really let's start using the bathroom <laughs> um but what's fascinating and i think i showed you this a couple of summers ago you take the zillow app you launch it. You say, "Show me what's around me." Right. It zooms in on on the map and says, starts to show you 
all of the houses along the waterfronts right. that you can now see from the boat that you can't see from the road, right? Because and it trees gives you and... right. It gives because they're set. They're on an acre or two. Yep. they're set way off the road. You can't even see them. Yep, and there are some really insane properties. Right. So it tells you if they were recently sold, what they were sold for. If they're up for sale, what the asking price is, and you could pull up all the details of them, including the taxes and everything else. It's really quite fascinating. That's, that's you say trans- there's a chain of that's seven. Tra- that's transparency 101. But when you say there's a chain of seven transactions, from starter home to the three-bedroom, right. one-and-a-half bath, to the five-bedroom, to the you know two-acre, two-million-dollar place, I'm trying to figure out how do you break down those gradations from, what did I just mention, starter, three, five... How do you get from the fourth step up to these $20 million waterfront mansions? What Are there legitimate gradations between, or is no. it just, I just think, negotiable? Yeah, I think you're looking at it too compartmentalized. That's what uh, I do. They're, they're, uh, they're, it's, it's more of a hot mess. It's just okay. smeared over, and, um, and, and also, too, that what is – when when a, when someone's in a house and they want to make a trade up, um, there's many layers that they could you know they could you know you go from a five hundred thousand dollar house to a three million dollar house or right. you go from a five hundred you know there isn't this sort of you know tradition necessarily regimented sort of uh, uh, well I'm thinking on so, average, so in other words what the, happens typically. Typically, married family buys a small house. Your income they expand, have a couple of kids. Your career, they get, right? They get they get a couple of kids. They get a little more money, right? And so now they go from a, a three. But boat. see, but see, also in this region, you have another thing where you have you have uh, you know a second home in the Hamptons, or you have or in any any or market Jersey trend, Shore or Berkshires or, or, or wherever a, or a pit a terre, you know mm-hmm. a, a um, you know a, a weekend place. And and so like you you know we're, there's all this uh, you know that we have the multi the super luxury towers that people aren't necessarily living in, but there are thousands of studio and one bedroom apartments in Midtown mm-hmm. where a um, a former uh, resident uh, kept it. They moved to the suburbs. They, they grew the family. The they kept the pietatier. Maybe they rented it. Maybe they used it for their kids when they're in college. Mm-hmm. But they have this flexibility. So, so they're 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 paying for the upkeep of that. Maybe they don't trade up as big in the suburbs to the sure. next house because they're going sense. back and forth. So, what you have in a pretty dynamic, uh, you know, in any sort of dynamic urban market surrounded by. Um, suburbs is there's this interplay between suburban and urban and mm-hmm. and right now with housing prices pushing uh record highs uh, record highs and actually pushing um consumers seeking out affordability to you know the outer boroughs to the suburbs you know when you're sitting here in manhattan and you're saying boy it's really expensive to live here um, right now, sales activity in the outlying suburbs is at record highs. Really? Because people can't afford to buy in Manhattan? Be, well, I think because they're priced out of Manhattan. Right. They're going to the burbs, uh, whether it's Long Island, Connecticut, uh, Fairfield Jersey. County, Westchester, uh, New Jersey. So the linkage with Manhattan is really important. 
but you're seeing a tremendous outflow because housing prices are up, changes, changes, uh, sort of, to lack of a better word, migration patterns of people mm-hmm. moving outward. That, that's really fascinating. You know, I always thought I wanted a pied-a-terre, and then when I finally more or less can afford one, when it comes time to actually, firstly, start looking at prices, they're insane. And, you know, my old apartment was in the Gramercy Park area. That's where I would want a pied-a-terre. But then when you look at, wait, why would I want to spend a million dollars plus some ungodly monthly maintenance right. of $2,000 a month? Uh, wait, for twenty four grand, maybe this is going to appreciate in value. Maybe it, it outpaces inflation. Maybe yeah. it doesn't. Aren't I better off not having a pied a terre, staying in whatever hotel I want for a long weekend, um, twenty times a year? Doesn't that put me well ahead of not having to tie up all this money and headache? So I've wrestled with that back because and it forth. could be. You know, you could also view it as, you know, I'm going to hold it for twenty years, right? And, and there's upside. Potentially, uh, to, sure. To that as well. There's also then, risk and, involved, but as also well. too. You know, some people want to go to a place that is theirs, where their, their clothes own. is there, their furniture, right. and, and that's why the, there there is no sort of regiment to this. It's just right. flexibility. Uh, you and I talked, I want to say, eight years ago about Miami. Yes. Uh, aside from the fact that the odds, are, well, there's a couple of issues. Aside from the fact that. It's sinking into the sea. Right. Uh, it's not just the sea is coming up. It's Miami is sinking. <laughs> That's what happens when you build on a uh, a coral basis, a porous uh, coral rock. Um, and the fact that their winters aren't consistently, you know, uh, Caribbean. It was just 40. Uh, yeah. yeah. You, but the other issue is same situation. You could steal a condo down. And I'm told it's still... Even though prices have bounced up, it's still relatively inexpensive. Oh, uh, I track the Miami market as well. And if you just look at Miami as a whole and not differentiate between condo and single family, it's about twenty or about a third uh, distressed, meaning- Still? Oh, yeah. That's huge. Uh, it, more inland than on the beach. Right. Uh, on the beach, it's more like 90-10- non-distressed distress those are really just rentals anyway (laughs) but but as you have them temporarily but so so in other words uh you have uh, a dramatic it's actually kind of surprising that you don't have a great differential uh in terms of geographic difference uh, or proximity between um sort of areas that have very little distressed real estate in areas that have a lot of distressed real estate and their pricing you know can be multiples of three or four or five for similar houses huh. um uh so so the market is polarized in other words they're mutually exclusive for the most part which i find uh sort of odd but but it really is is been the way that the market has morphed so miami is seeing has seen tremendous development growth mm. um i was just down there last week cranes everywhere you would think the there was never a housing crisis right right it's interesting because also what you're seeing now with miami is there's this so like new york the new development market is seeing a slowdown right stronger dollar uh you Less know overseas money more building in. so the consumer of these properties is taking a longer, you know, to make a decision because they have a lot more choices and they're trying to make sure they're comfortable. Still a lot of activity, but not to the degree it was a few years ago. Um, 
you're seeing people now talk like in the last uh, housing cycle, Miami was the first to fall. Right. So does this mean with Miami now um, uh, showing some weakness at the top of the market, not the re- but the top of the market, is this a leading indicator? And I sort of chuckle with that because – because the last go round, it was about doctor. Uh, uh, I like to say, uh, uh, like nurses and carpenters quitting their jobs and flipping real estate for a living. In the movie The Big Short, it's the stripper who owns six rental properties. Exactly. And and he, uh, the Steve Carell character is talking about what are you going to do uh, when your mortgage resets? And she goes, a mortgage re- resets. What are you talking about? And he explains this to her, and she goes, expletive. I have six properties I bought, and it dawns on him. Wait, if strippers are buying, are able to get credit to buy six properties, right, and then rent them, and don't even know their variable mortgages, right. How is this going to end? It's it, well, well, it's it's going to end badly. And and so so what? And what's interesting now is that uh, unlike many other markets, the Miami market is still heavily all cash. So the the cash buyer, and not just at the tie-in, but the overall- Is that why the Treasury Department is looking at Manhattan and yes, Miami? That's one of the reasons. Uh, part of the reason that Miami has heavy cash is because lenders are still- Very you know, tight credit. Tight credit. And also, you know, there's a legacy of foreclosures and distressed real estate sure. not so long ago. So they, they're just very conservative. Mm-hmm. And that's so. So to think of that as some sort of leading indicator, it's unique to Miami. It's not a national trend. It doesn't seem to be. I I, I don't get the connection. Are but. you seeing anything else? Well, let's look at some of the other problem areas. Last go round, in addition to South Florida, it was Arizona. It was the Vegas, sand states, and it was yeah. uh, the eastern part of of Las California. Vegas, right? Yeah, Nevada. So so what are you seeing in in Nevada, Arizona and and the non-coastal regions in California? So uh still you know the foreclosure crisis while it certainly uh has eased dramatically from where it was at the peak. Mm-hmm. Uh you know I'd say it's stabilized these markets uh, wildly overbuilt uh, during the period, you know. The, the just, what do you mean you don't want to commute two hours into Vegas? Right, the exurbs, right. It doesn't make any sense. So, um, in you know, the sort of rule is if you're in a market like Phoenix or Las Vegas where land is cheap and endless, plentiful, yeah, it it's not you, you shouldn't expect it to rise dramatically right. unless there's some external stimulus like. Free, no free credit, yeah. No credit standards, right? And which is exactly what happened. What about an area where let's let's look at D.C. or New York or San Francisco, where there isn't an endless supply of land, and there are all sorts of restrictions on on buildings, or at least regulations on how much we can build? Then we have a housing affordability crisis, which is a national condition right now. Every, it just seems like every major. I, I get calls from. Is it rep- cities or or or? So it it's a combination. It, it it's there's no doesn't matter whether you're a big or small or uh, middle mid size. It doesn't matter whether you're a, you know sort of a, a region with similar employment. Um, it, it's it's the fact that when credit conditions are tight, it places 
outsized demand on the rental market because the consumer that organically would have transferred from the rental market to the purchase market become a first-time buyer, which guess what? We have Moves shortage of. Yep. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the supply is relatively inelastic and the uh, rents go up. And, and in fact, in, you know, credit is the, is the reason why, you know, if you look back over the last five or six years, the rent rents got expensive during the foreclosure crisis. You would think that they would get cheap because you have no, all it's the, the opposite. It's just the you know, opposite. People can't afford a house. So they're forced to be a renter would be buyers become renters would be mortgage applicants become renters because the bank's credit line. Look, I just bought a house, you know, a year yeah. and change ago. Um, I tell this story all the time, it's, and I think it's hilarious. The first house we bought out in the Burbs was in a little town called Greenvale. I think we paid two sixty for this. It's fifteen plus years ago. We did a refi in I want to say '05 or '06, and I'll never forget. And I had already been pretty teed, clued in to what was going on on the real estate side, and had been writing about it. But I'll never forget. We did the refi, and the plan was to take thirty grand out lower our costs and redo the kitchen and now the house value goes up and the guy literally pulls into the driveway flings the car door open leaves the engine running and you hear on the front porch we had, it was an old uh style uh victorian with a covered front porch and right. you hear him run up the up the porch into the house hey i'm really sorry i have another closing of a of a, a sale of a house four blocks away sign sign initial initial here's your check got to go. And the guy was in and out. Uh, it couldn't Amazing. have been more than 60 seconds. And I looked at my wife and I said, well, the good news is we, we're going to get a kitchen. The bad news is this is going to end badly. It, there's no other way that this sort of stuff, like we looked at each other, like what just happened? It was a cartoon where, where yeah. Bugs Bunny, where, where the witch zips out, you see the lines and the hairpins right. hanging in the air. Right. That That's what it's like. Fast forward 15 years where I'm, I'm trying to get a jumbo mortgage and the torturous process the banks put us through. Right. Where Be I have Mike Bloomberg co-signing my mortgage. It still took. <laughs> that's a joke. Uh, it's still. It, but it took forever. Right. To get this process. Because, through. you know, credit in auto loans and credit cards is fast and loose. Yeah. You know. That's uh, why auto sales are doing so well. Right. It's You it, could. you Well, but now let's let's talk about automobiles for a second because I love this area. <laughs> So I read this fascinating article about repos. And in college, I love the movie Repo Man. That's my favorite movie. Get out of here. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, you're, you're You'll kidding. find one in every car. I got it on my iPhone. That's hilarious. So they not, <laughs> you know, the I think the average time. Now I really respect you, Barry. You, you, like you've, you've elevated to another Repo level. Man, absolutely. Yeah, the greatest. Um, so, so when you look at a house that goes into foreclosure, so it's, it's you miss a payment, it, it's, what are the three stages? Delinquent, default, and then eviction. Eviction. Or, yeah. So, but from from that default where you haven't made payments in ninety days to the actual foreclosure and they take possession of the house and throw the, it's five hundred days on average. New York State and New Jersey are a thousand days. Okay, now the let's slowest in the the longest. I thought Miami like, was worse, but they nope. had those they had those rocket courts which were disasters unto themselves. Yep. Now take an automobile. You miss a payment. They know where you work. Right. They have a tracker in the car anyway. Your cell phone is trackable. And now these repo guys are paying malls and other places 
to they have these cameras at the entrances and exits of every major shopping center. They read the license plate as it <laughs> really? goes in. It, uh, there are some amazing things about this. So if you, assuming you're not taking your car and saying, I'm going to ship it to overseas to be sold and I'm never going to make another payment again. Assume you're a typical car buyer. You borrow money or you t do a lease or you do a financing. You get a car and you go home and you're going back and forth to work. If you decide to stop making payments on that car, you miss a payment. 30 days later, 90 it's plus over. percent of those cars have been repossessed. And I think the numbers go practically to 100 percent. 45 days later. Right, but the problem with the foreclosure, you know, that the the house side of the story is that no one really knew, knows who owns the house. Well, that's a whole different <laughs> which, mess. Which, Thanks to which, MERS and other other things, it's yes. it's really been a, uh, a and, headache. And, Those 1,000-day houses are because the, uh, the mortgage side of things decided to bypass. Uh, there is a, a – I have a whole monograph on this, and I, I won't go into it here – but there is a whole process for making sure we know the exact survey of the land, right. the chain of, of title, right. and and any uh, changes we've made to the legal status of that land. Did you give this person an easement? Did you subdivide? Did you do this? And that worked really well for a long time until we decided to bring – till the mortgage people on their own, till the banks on their own – decided to put together to this save money on transaction fees transaction fees filing costs local taxes yes in many ways I have argued that what they did was tax evasion yes and in other ways fraud they have got argued that well we've gotten approval or at least and it, it appears, a no a no foul and ruling. it appears to me that people that are challenging them win yeah so so I can't so it but it's so widespread it was it was a huge swath of the mortgage business went through this vehicle and if you and and again another another fascinating discussion if this vehicle didn't exist and here's the best reason for dissembling it and making it illegal which is very tough to do when you own congress but um when they own congress right, and right, you right. want to do something different you could not have had a secure mass securitization to the degree we did where the paperwork was a mess Without this electronic system, believe it or not, the old-fashioned land record system where yeah. someone takes a paper, goes down to the county clerk, and he yep. takes out his big stamp, and okay, this mortgage has been filed, and now we're taking these papers and sending it to the lawyers. I like and the it sound effects the on this podcast, by it, the way. It's fascinating. We have a deep, <laughs> a deep special effects team. But that process, if you have to send someone down to the county yeah. You're not going to be flipping this property every 15 seconds. You're not going to have high-frequency trading of mortgages the way we more or less did. And it was just one of those things where, hey, this system works really well and has for hundreds of years. Right. Let's throw it away and start Well, it's over. funny. A parallel, maybe a distant parallel, is uh, appraisal licensing didn't come in until 1989, and, and it was – a byproduct of the SNL scandal, and, right? Where and, thousands of people went to jail, right? Exactly, right? Exactly. Unlike the the well, last financial crisis, right? But what was fascinating is the way that that worked is they would they would find a crony appraiser, uh -huh. and they would appraise the value of a house every hour. Come on, because <laughs> so, it's changed so much because from eleven to twelve. Apparently, the data was that granular. <laughs> 
that you could you could you could sort of extract a value change from ten fifteen in the morning till two forty five in the afternoon. Here's the great scam. Now I know you no longer do the sort of mass appraisals. No, no. That that the what do you mean is for like the big retail banks? Right. And and that's a whole discussion what, about the. Well, let let's quickly have that discussion because yeah. that's fascinating. If the basis of giving, so let's step back. When when uh, the famous uh, Benjamin Graham quote is in the short run, the market is a uh, voting machine, but in the long run, it's a weighing machine. Meaning, mm. uh, opinion and sentiment affect short term prices, but over the long haul, intrinsic value will ultimately win out. Now, the entire appraisal system, as I've witnessed it as a buyer or seller of a house, seems to be based on comps, on comparable homes yeah. in the area. But stop and think about what that means during a credit bubble or a housing boom, because that house sold for a hundred grand more than we, you and I know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, it's really worth, but it's similar to my house. Now I could get in my house to go up in value, all you're doing is ratifying an upward spiral. There is no, you're not looking at, at how home prices relative to income in the area. Right. You're not looking at the home's price relative to Although some, rental. There is a check to that because, because we also look at contract activity, contract prices, uh -huh. and you can see a market turn, whether going up or down. Do appraisers not a, not approve houses for for in those circumstances? So so think of what's happened since Dodd Frank and financial reform mm -hmm. is that uh, they have installed or legitimized a middleman called an appraisal management company or AMC. So is in the other acronym. words, the bank is in hiring a favored appraiser right. to rubber stamp because the, the implication mortgage. is. The bank knows me for 30 years uh, and they trust me. That somehow morphed into, you know, I'm on the dole, you know, because, and I understand that, you know, there, there certainly is that component to well, too close was, to, but, but it, the idea was every major bank had an appraisal panel that you were a member of and they were hard to get on right. and you were vetted and they review your work and they constantly go after you. It's not like some guy at a desk says, Hey, I needed to come in. Uh, you know, that was the, a widespread practice until the housing bubble right. when when credit or um, uh, uh, collateral value didn't matter right. because everything was already- was you could, going to be sold off. Uh, sold off. You could offload the risk to some unwitting investor, right. a school system in Minnesota or the Icelandic banking system, whatever whatever you happen to pick. So so so, so, so the, the point is, is that what- happened to take away the control that the lender or influence a lender would have over the appraiser I, maybe it was best intentions but it was it was idiotic because right. what it ended up doing was putting installing a middleman which is essentially think of them as a giant automated conveyor belt the right. faster you do work the faster you get more work and the only standards they use uh first of all the bank doesn't pay for that the appraiser pays for that by giving up half their fee. So right now there is an appraisal. The the um, the banking industry is saying there's an appraisal shortage in the U.S. They've made it un undesirable. No, 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 no. To it's, be an appraiser. No, no. There are plenty of appraisers. There just are not enough appraisers that are willing to work for half the market rate. So so what's happening is you have a misalignment of. The, the talent pool against what the wages are. So what 
appraisers like myself and others left retail banking and where we do, you know, litigation, court testimony, estates and trusts, matrimonial. And I'm never going back because <laughs> because to, to the retail banking side because it's so distorted and right. dis sort of uh disconnected from any worry about collateral value. Uh, so, being so the old problem was, and you had a bunch of appraisers. It was mortgage brokers that were controlling the appraisal, the appraiser. They were essentially the bank is saying you know, to the mortgage broker, find the appraiser. Now, remember, the mortgage broker only gets paid if they get a if the, the deal, deal closes, closes yeah. right? So there's a complete conflict. And then they and want an appraiser who's going to rubber stamp the who's going to who's no longer an appraiser. They're a deal enabler, right? And so that so so that loan closes, and and then the appraiser gets another assignment, and you know they they get and very now you busy. have a higher comparable, and higher prices are immediately justified. And all the appraisers that I knew in this area that all of a sudden exploded. They went from two or three people to a hundred people. Wow. And were, you know, the owners are driving in limos with cell phones, doing deals with banks. They're all gone. They all exploded right. because, because when the credit, uh, uh, bubble popped, uh, that was it. For that, that was it for the mortgage brokerage industry, uh, as well. That's been decimated since the financial crisis. So, so the problem that we had, was that you had, I want to say it was 04, you had a bunch of appraisers go down to Congress and complain about this, saying, look, something's going on in the housing market where we can't do a legitimate appraiser, the prices are coming in crazy, and if you don't approve it, you don't get used anymore. So it's either rubber stamp this nonsensical price, or I'm not sending you any business. It's similar to what took oh, place it, in the in the uh, credit rating agency. Hey, if you don't give me AAA, I'll go down the, the street. The to appraiser's your predicament is exactly the positioning that the credit rating agencies are in uh, with uh, the investment banks. I mean that that is the problem is that you're you're at the trough, right. uh, being fed, and you can't disappoint your provider. And that, so what does this new model do? Does it do anything better or is it just, it uh, doesn't, it actually is, does things worse. It relies on automated valuation, which is, um, wildly inaccurate, certainly will improve over time. But the problem with data as we we've touched on before is that, uh, public record data, the quality of public record data varies significantly from municipality to municipality. New York I'm city sure. has the most archaic primitive, Raw for being the financial capital of the world in quotes, right. uh, the the raw data here through the ACRA system is the most primitive, raw, inaccurate data. I cover, I do research in eighteen different housing markets of the, across the country. By far, New York City is the dirtiest raw data that we come. Dirty across. data done not cheap. Is done that what you're saying? Dirt cheap. <laughs> that that's amazing. You would think if anyone has good data, I, maybe this is home country bias here for me as a New Yorker sitting here in Data Central and Bloomberg. But that's amazing that that is still okay. 50%. So I we, guess it works good enough, so there's no incentive to re replace it. Right. Or or it's just been that way for a long time, and no one's bothering to to look at it. The the uh, You know, in the research we do, like I publish a, a report, for example, on the Manhattan sales market, 50% of our research time is spent cleaning and verifying public record which to me is insane. 
there's lots of issues with uh, wrong numbers, you know, zeros missing, punctuation, uh, combined apartments uh, given the wrong square footage. Um, it just goes on and on and on. And public record really is only the buyer and the seller, the address, the apartment number, uh-huh. and or the unit number, if it's a condo, the price, the closing, and recording date. That's it. There's no How other hard med- should it be to put? That's a simple database to assemble. But- is it manual? Is it not on a on? on There's enough system? manual to make it really dirty, and in a amazing in, and in it, I've been doing this uh, in the market for 30 years now. Started when I was five, as I like right. to say, and uh, <laughs> and and the data is exactly the same in the mid 80s when I started as it is now. No, no upgrade due to technology. Zero. So, so in the last five or ten minutes that we have. Are there any real estate? I mean, we've already done these standard questions before, so I'm not gonna ask you who your mentors were or what your favorite books were. Although I can ask you, have you read any interesting books since the last time we've had you on? By the way, you're only our third repeat guest in two years. So it's an honor. I I appreciate that. You took you took the bronze. Right. Well, enough stuff has changed in the housing market that I thought it would be interesting to chat about. Hey, what what's different? What's going on? And we still have a fairly okay housing market, it sounds like. Yes. But lots of problems. Lots of distortion from Fed policy and, um, you know, the whole idea of of, uh, tight credit conditions that are being created from the distortion. So so we basically have a um, an okay housing market, but it's it's we're dealing with these distortions from the Fed. We're dealing with some of these other issues. So if, if I were to ask you, what's the state of the housing market here and now, how do you contextualize it? What do you say the uh, U.S. state of the housing market? Is it still very uneven around the country, or what are we basically seeing? I, so so I, I don't think that it, that the unevenness description applies anymore. I, I'd say that it certainly has improved. Uh, it is in this transition period from uh, weak to it, but it has not normalized. And and, and oh, do we still have the same inventory issue? Which we have. I remember you. We have chronically low inventory across the. You know, it, that's driving prices. That's up. driving prices higher that don't match wage growth. Right. So so that's. But not you a, also had previously wrote a long piece about the number of homeowners that either have are either not. We all know about underwater homeowners whose house is worth just less low equity than, but you've talked about no equity or low equity and that locks them in place they can't roll into the next and uh, link in the chain in, in housing right if you're a homeowner and you don't uh you don't have any financial problems you're under duress you have your job everything's great and you keep reading about record low rates or le- rates are very low hey let's look for a new place you, you apply for a mortgage and you don't qualify because you have low equity you don't have enough for a down payment uh you uh, and i'm not saying that's bad but it is there's no but it's it's impacting the market it's clearly. impacting the market um to the point where uh so now you as that homeowner, are you going to list your property for sale? Of course not. Even though you have all that money on paper, uh, you know, even if you only have- you Phantom know, equity. Yeah. Even though, even if you only, you don't have enough to buy the, the trade up, but you still have, you know, $100,000 in equity in your house. You can't realize that or, or do anything with it because you probably can't get a, a home equity loan. Credit standards, I believe, are the standard 
is sort of, uh, I'd call it quadruple A, uh -huh. like irrational, wow. it's irrationally tight that any, cons you talk to anybody going to a closing, the, the impression they get from the lender is that the bank is up until the day of the closing are looking for reasons not to close. Let me tell you, when I, and again, not to make this personal about my transaction, I had a stock option issue in 04, and I, I resolved it a decade ago. It shows up on the credit report. I, I actually had to go to 44th Street to the IRS building, take a number, go to a thing, and, and get proof that – so there are apparently multiple levels of – if it says tax paid, uh, tax lien – because I didn't even know I had a tax lien – and the accountant found it. We settled, took care of this a decade ago. No exaggeration, a decade ago. Wow. Now I had to go and get this taken care of. And the hoops they make you jump through. So you go there. You have to sign this thing. You have to prove you have no outstanding taxes. You owe no money. You have none of this. So it's not just satisfied. It's satisfied, discharged, fully caught up, et cetera. That was a crazy hoop to jump through. Right. And then they would say, so I get paid certain things, 1099 certain things on a normal W-2. And it's not like it's a variable. It's each month the same amount of money hits. It's more or less the same right. day. It comes from the same source. Hey, what's this uh, on the 15th? Dude, I've told you this every month for the past three months. Right. That's a 1099. Here's the source. Here it is. And it's like an odd amount ending in 933 spot 66. It's the same thing month after month. It's like, you realize that this isn't like, okay, we're going to do a cocaine run and, and uh, here's what we got for the haul. It's to the penny, the same exact amount. Every Why month. can't you figure this out? And I was lamenting about this to our real estate attorney. And he said, well, welcome to housing in 2015. Well, 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 think about why that's happening is, is, uh, it stupidity really overcompensation. They were so completely but the, irresponsible the, the mind, last time. Now they've gone the opposite extreme. But the mindset in banking, um, in mortgage lending, that is, um, for you know the big retail banks is uh, the legacy of bad decisions in the last cycle, forced buybacks by uh, the, the former GSEs on, uh -huh. on loans issued in 06 with a typo. Uh, a typo or... Or We're fraud. warranting that this is a 720 FICO score with someone making ninety five thousand dollars and it turned and a loan to value of of seventy five percent when they had a four hundred FICO score they were making thirty grand right. it, it, and the loan to value was one hundred twenty correct. So I that, don't believe if it was a, like a mere typo and if, oh yes if they wrote street instead of lane that's material and they could put the mortgage back. So so that's but that is we're seeing an extreme. Um, overreaction overreaction on that uh it's you know not like oh an e should have been typed as an a but but it's not material to the collateral to the value is what we're seeing um and on top of that um you know i think low interest rates are also keeping credit tight 10 year by the way as the, as of this recording is two zero zero percent in the united states right and two years ago i told people hey if you have a variable mortgage you might want to think about locking in these low rates while they're here. Right. And here it is two years later, and we still have low well, rates. Well, even after the after Fed. After the, the first Fed, Fed raise. Right, right. At the first Fed raise, and, and we have rates drifting lower. So what does that mean? That means that 
things are not necessarily that great. Um, mm-hmm. Demand for, or it means there's still a such a demand for low demand for capital uh, that that's what tends to to some degree cause competition for mortgages and rates, but. Uh, it's an amazing, amazing, and, and also too, also too that you know the, the sort of the media conversation about rising rates. It was, it was, it was like you know, it was like waiting for the ball to drop on New Year's Eve. That you know, right. that what's you know the housing here market's going to implode, right? Here and, it is, and nothing happened because <laughs> because it's first of all. Um, the the rise would be very it was anticipated to be very small and it was right. and what and, what are they they're saying under the best of conditions it's it's gonna they're gonna take it up four quarter point increases over a year right which which still right. is I think in, the, inordinately low rates one that would be one percent right I think the markets are saying there's a fifty percent chance of that or something like that right I I I am skeptical that there'll be any when the actual rates are drifting lower, but I know that their Fed isn't only looking at housing, um, obviously. Um, but but the idea that low rates uh, are keeping credit conditions tight as well, because there's no margin, there's no spread, there's, there's no, margin, no money to be made. There's there, there's there's for no the banks, room, there's, for the lenders. there's no room for error, mm-hmm. and and so it's part it feeds this sort of paranoid or conservative um, mindset. I I use uh, you know it's it just the 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 free money out of the Fed, which is a, not really an accurate thing to describe it as, um, is allowed banks to grow their lines of business, you know, rebuild their capital, but it allow allow all this bad debt that are on the books to gradually run off. Yes, either through foreclosure or rising ho- home prices that took what was once a wildly underwater mortgage and say, okay, tell you what, we'll take the house, we'll forgive the loan. You, you're done with it, and now we could sell this right. and, and be ninety percent made. Unless hard. you're in Spain, and then you're right. like on the hook for life. <laughs> well, you know, the U.S. has some states that are recourse, some states that yes. are non-recourse. Different countries yep. don't necessarily have that same dichotomy. Right. There, there. Some uh, 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 any. So to in in New York, I believe we're a non-recourse state, and basically the contract says. You lend me a more money to buy a house, and I'll give you an interest in the house as collateral to make sure you get repaid. Hey, and if I ever stop paying the mortgage, you get the house. Right. That seems like a fair deal, assuming the house price is reasonable and right. stable. I put ten or twenty percent down, so I'm not just going to walk away. Right. I have skin in the game, uh, an expression I've come to despise. Actually, and and that's very different than. Than saying, "Hey, you owe this money, and we don't really care what happens." Well, what, uh, just just sort of to piggyback on this, but maybe uh, maybe I'm going off on a tangent. One of the things I learned in in the last down cycle mm-hmm. is that in the new development world, the deposits that a that a uh, a buyer would put on a purchase was ten percent. That was the that was the standard deposit. Ten percent down, sure. So it's a million dollar. You know, you put a hundred thousand down. When Lehman collapsed and, and sales 08. right sales stalled uh-huh. uh, for the next <laughs> excuse me in two thousand nine, many many consumers walked away from that ten percent. 
How do you walk away as opposed to taking the house? As opposed, no, because it's now worth they, no, less they had, than. They, no, they hadn't closed yet. It was just a contract waiting for the building to be built, but they walked away from the from the deposit the contract. So then because they didn't they, close because they did they did not close. The consumer uh, is out the four, the hundred thousand dollars because and, and but they don't have a million dollar mortgage on a five hundred thousand dollar correct. Except for the market came back in like three years. So what I learned from this is huh, that's fascinating. What you buy uh, distressed real estate. Right. <laughs> so, so what I learned though is that uh, the the developers where the deposit was twenty or twenty five percent, no one walked, no away. one walked away, and um, uh, you know the developer was in better shape, you know, as as a result. It the was, the last house, this house that we we live in now, I think, I think the mortgage was either ten or a twenty percent deposit. And we ended up putting down well over 30%, which is really tying up money you can otherwise use for other things. But from my wife's perspective, she's like, I want to know that there's a huge buffer and we don't have to worry about right. anything. And and the peace of mind and psychology I of not feeling like, prudent. you know, is, is this an optimal financing? No, but the, it's a place you live in, and it's not a place where you want to want to be a source. Well, of Well, the stress. problem in the last cycle, the the housing bubble, is that there was a mistaken a, the 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 fact that with secu- not that securitization securitization was the problem, but the securitization vehicle and all the financial uh, engineering that went on gave a sort of false security that risk could be managed, and and that the 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 consumer. Uh, you know, thought that prices would go up forever. There, it was just leverage the heck out of it, right? Uh, and you and, offer people free money, and, and I just it. remember the mindset during that process, like, oh yeah, you know, I'll just refi again, or you know, like that was the thinking. But that's what people were told <laughs> when you went when you went to. So I spoke to a number of mortgage brokers in that period. I'm always, you know, what some people call shopping. I call economic research, and I I've spoken to a number of people, and I said. Why would I want to do a variable with rates as low as they are? By the way, they're much lower today, is the joke. Yeah. But why would I want to do that? You know, the odds are that 10 years from now, the rates are much higher. And the answer was the same thing. Buy as much house as you can afford. Yes. And if you, if you, if you run into an issue, if rates go up, you could refi. You could do the, the assumption was always that the conditions at present would continue into the future. And you know, when you see aberrational conditions, that's a bad assumption to make, <laughs> right? You can't yeah, assume stuff is going to stay the same going forward. Actually, the mindset during the bubble was you don't even look at the price. You look at the payment. Uh, How it's much, the monthly nut. I've written the, about that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So it was the op- So as the rates went down, the, the pr- home price went up. But the monthly payment was still more or less the same. Right. And, and that's something that low rates drive prices up. Right. So at, at least theoretically, if people are buying houses based on what they can afford to pay. Right. Right. So at, once that became unhinged, then all bets were off. Um, so we've talked a lot about, about the current housing situation. We've talked about what went off the rails during the boom and bust. Um, any any important thing we might have overlooked in terms of housing before we get to automobiles. <laughs> no, I think uh, I think you've drained my housing soul. Okay, so now let's talk about... So everybody thinks that you're sort of a middle-of-the-road conservative guy. I think more accurately, I'm a dull and boring numbers right. guy. He's a... Uh, John, yeah, I like Miller. I, I look at his stuff. He's interesting. He really knows his stuff. He's kind of a data wonk. 
<sighs> but you're really kind of a, a, a gadget head as well. I see you have your Apple Watch on yes. and your other stuff. Yeah. But you recently came into possession of a hellacious vehicle, and I love the story. <laughs> what are you driving these days? Um, I'm driving a- You buy American, I know that. Absolutely. Uh, a 2016 uh, Dodge Challenger SRP 392 Coupe with a V8 Hemi. Is that is that the Hellcat version of it? It is not. It is one step below the Hellcat, and I only did that because I didn't want to wait four months. This one was available. And so, uh, what's the horsepower on this ridiculous? Four hundred eighty-five, and it shaved twelve seconds off my commute. So I feel like it's a <laughs> there's like a benefit. Uh, by, by the way, the joke is your commute is how far? Uh, you drive to the train it's station. It's about a mile and a half. <laughs> <laughs> but you took twelve seconds off. Yeah, you know efficiency. You know so it says so five hundred horse. So what's the difference between this and the Hellcat? That's seven hundred horse. Isn't I think it? so. Yeah, it's like just under seven, maybe. Uh, I. Yeah, it's 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 a little unnecessary, but uh, so what on earth made you buy such a ridiculous? So, so and- here's the thing: I have four kids. We have like an auto dealership in our driveway with and, all these. And let me let me just stop you there and say, you have a driveway full of rust bucket pickup trucks, and yes. there isn't a nice car. Any the last time we drove by, yep. even the little two seat sports car you had was rusting and a little dinged up. There wasn't much. Yeah, it's it's sexy three, it's, sheet metal. It's there. three kids in college and and six cars besides mine with with the, my wife and my son. So so I've been holding off for a while and uh, and my my uh, my wife who incidentally today is our thirty second anniversary. Happy anniversary! So you can see I'm a great husband. I'm here right. talking to you. <laughs> That's right. But we're happily married. She's awesome. But anyway, uh, just alone. She's awesome and alone. <laughs> right. Exactly. We're recording this at six thirty now, and you're not going to see her till eight o'clock I'll tonight. See her tonight. You'll get tonight. home eventually. Yeah, I'll get home eventually. Honey, wake up. Happy anniversary. <laughs> but but anyway, what um, it was funny because I had long eyed the Tesla and and also interesting car the 90d yeah so i was and that insanity mode is pretty zero to 60 and that's motorcycles it's it's amazing it's crazy but that's faster than any production gasoline car in the world it's it's amazing and i'm a mac nut so the whole idea of updating your software overnight overnight plugged in yeah and plugging in and you know the interstate next to me there's a supercharged station and i could put one in my house and you know the whole sort of you know, uh, uh, in, it, I don't Elon know you, Musk cult the, the, is the, the whole sort of internet, cult. right? It was it was just sort of that feel that appealed to me. Yeah, but I was looking at the prices. You know, They're for somebody very expensive. I drive three thousand miles a year. Right. So so it was without the incentives. It was like eighty five thousand dollars for the midsize model, and without the full insanity mode package. Correct. And it was eighty five thousand, and I thought, well, you know, three thousand miles a year, eighty five thousand. This seems excessive. You're not really polluting. You're polluting more with the boat than you are with the car, right? It, like in, in although ma- multiplied by six cars, it's a different right. Amount. And then, uh, and then the other one was um, just looking at like a used, like a Porsche uh, uh, Panamera. I wanted an adult car because so, so I've been Panamera, driving. I have to tell you, my wife first saw that car. And she is not a go get something expensive. She's like, you know, we could get a used Honda and be fine. I'm the one right. who's like, uh, shiny, I want that. Right, right. The Panamera is gorgeous, but having two giant dogs, 
the back seats or buckets, you can't put dogs back there. Oh, I see. Um, we don't have any dogs, so that was never factored into the math. Now, if you like the Panamera and you need a back seat, they're McCann S. They're small yes. small, truck, uh, yeah. which is based on the Audi Q5. Every review I've seen of them are off the charts. Right. You've you've seen my driveway, which yeah. is like a a cross country right. mountain climbing expedition. Yes, uh, and, and people who follow me on Twitter have seen my orange crush. Yes, Jeep Rubicon, which is my other midlife crisis. Which I picked that up. That was a salvage vehicle that some idiot had fried the electrical system. Right, and the the insurers sold it for you know, pennies on the dollar, and it, it costs next to nothing right. to turn that into a fully you've got operational. a fun, a fun vehicle. I, I was never a Jeep guy. I always thought they were bouncy and idiotic vehicles. And after last winter, I am a full-blown Love convert. It. I used to get into – so I remember last year, I, think, I don't think I've told this story on the air, go to work, a foot of snow falls, come home, the Long Island Railroad in all their wisdom decides to plow the parking lot – and of course, plow everybody in. Block everybody. So everybody comes in and people are digging out. And my buddy with his Audi is trying to, is in a suit and tie, is digging out. And I get into the Jeep and go, let's see what happens. And I put into reverse. There's like a three foot hill behind Just go right me, over it. Up and over it. And I'm the first guy out of the parking lot. And I just laughed at the thought of this guy's grimace as I drove by and I making a gesture as I, <laughs> as I drove by. So I'm a convert into that. And every review I've read of the McCann S. Which, by the way, the interior very much looks Porsche Panamera. Well, that's the whole thing with the with the Porsche. It's spectacular. The luxury Porsches. The uh, we could talk about the pronouncement. It's sure. Porsche. Porsche uh, is really top notch. That's one of my attractions. But again, I drive three thousand miles a year. So so I have like all my monitors open. I've got you know the website for Tesla for Porsche, and uh, I pull up uh, the Dodge option only because it's much which dodge are you looking at the at the time i was looking at the challenger which for the, my whole life i've always wanted one the old challenger the classic but, but i'm not american a muscle grease monkey right. i don't want to or or i don't want to like have a mechanic auto mechanic be part of my family right constantly it, fit. so so i i i just love the lines and um and it was so much less expensive I think orders it, of magnitude it, it, or it retailed for 52 right which, which you know compared to 85 uh and not only that but it's got a hemi and it's your got wife tells the story that you guys went to the dealer yeah so, yeah so what happened was i showed my wife uh and she and i said well let's go just check it out and she said yeah sure and um and in the parking lot, you know, you're, you're worried about what the uh, – we, we go to this dealership, which is the only one in Fairfield County that has this car. And ironically, 20 years ago, when our kids were young, we bought a Dodge Caravan. <laughs> and uh, and A fine uh, and automobile. I, and I said a joke to the, uh, the sales guy because we were looking at caravans and grand caravans. Right. And the difference in, you know, they're about 14 inches different in right. length uh, behind the back seat. So there's still, and but the difference in retail price was about $1,000. So I said, oh, that's how, that's why it's a grand caravan. It's a it's grand. A grand. <laughs> it's, it's a grand, grand more. more. 
and find humor in that. But anyway, so we go to this dealership and the uh, and the guy um, uh, walks out to the parking lot and all he did, I couldn't see the car, is he turned it on and it was he wasn't right, 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 just, just the idling of it. And yeah. I turned to my wife and I said, that's Sold. it. Sold. And then we did a test drive and she loved it. Really? She loved it. And um, hey, we've been married 32 years. Uh, so I'm, I'm 23 years. Yeah. And I'm so... I'm the irresponsible one in the family. My wife is down to earth. Look, we've we've hung with each other. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, the four of us have gone out. I'm the one who's hey, what's this new restaurant? Let's go try this. <laughs> so I'm usually the one who, who who is pointing at the shiny objects. Right. And my wife is like, down boy. You know, <laughs> sit, stay. This good. does sound familiar. So so we were driving the other day. Uh, and this before the snow had come down, and we come across the new Corvette, right. which is also about fifty grand, about four hundred and fifty horse. And she's, I go, is it just me or is that a really good looking Corvette? And she's like, I would have that in a minute. the The trick is there are only a handful of cars left that you can buy with a stick shift. Yes. And if you want to drive which us, is what I get. us old guys who like to shift our own gears and not. Use a ridiculous flappy, uh, right? The the paddle flippers, um, which on my infinity is titanium. Wow! I don't need a titanium <laughs> paddle shifter. I want a, a proper three pedal car. But anyway, um, she's like, "You want to go get that?" And and we have another car that's all wheel drive. Feel free. We, right. we have the Jeep. You could do that. The problem that I run into is so I start looking at the vet. And then the next step up from the vet is the LT1, which is the 600-horse engine. Right. Um, and then, if you've ever seen that Jaguar F-Type, I have oh, never- beautiful. I have never desired a Jaguar since the E-Type, which yes. was spectacular. Right. Every Jaguar ever since has been, yeah, okay. Let me know when you make something as beautiful as the- You mean during the, the Ford era? <laughs> uh, during, the, during every era yeah. from the E-Type until last year, yeah. the new F-Type- which you can get the six cylinder Those with are... a stick. You can't. I don't believe you get the eight cylinder with a stick, but you can get the six, six. cylinder. Which, according to, um, according to Top Gear, you really don't need more than that for that right. car. That's kind of so. That my problem is the same thing happened with the boat. Whenever I start shopping, so my wife you get grew, deeper and deeper. Right. So my wife grew up. Her brother had a sailboat. The other brother had a motorboat. I live on an island by the water. I want a boat. Ah, who needs a boat? After 9-11, she said, all right, go get yourself a boat. And then I spend the next seven years researching boats until I finally, <laughs> then the financial crisis hits and then I buy a boat. That See, was, I have uh, a different relationship with my wife because uh, I was at a little league game and we're talking to this woman, a single mom with two kids. Yeah. And she said, uh, and she had a boat. And, uh -huh. and she had a boat, single mom, two kids. Right. And so my <laughs> wife said, really? And, uh, and, yeah, and told her, you know, how you do it, you know, go to this marina, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and she said, well, that sounds great. And I, we took her, I just, I said, <laughs> let's go look. We went and bought a boat that day. Really? Yes. Now, you didn't disclose to your wife that this woman has a trust fund. No. <laughs> and that, you know, the marina fees are five grand a year and it's right. not what. Listen, uh... listen, the only thing that makes the toys fun is if your partner has fun with it. Right. Because if it's a source of agitation, or, it's not worth it. It's not worth it, and right. so I it's only totally want to do it. things like that that she's on board with because it, that's what makes it fun. I'm I'm the same way. We we I occasionally have to twist her arm 
on vacations. And look, when I, when I show her a vacation, she goes, gee, that's awfully expensive. I'm not talking like a $40,000 right. luxe vacation package. It's like a six or a seven or an $8,000 vacation, which is not cheap, but it's not egregious right. for two people who work, have no debt and no kids. Right. It's not a crazy number. Look, if I said to her, Look at this package. We're going to go to Bali. It's only $90,000. She would hit me in the head with a frying pan. Right. But when I show her, look, this is St. Thomas. It's yeah. eight grand. Really? Isn't that a lot of money? No, I take a week off a year. I think we can. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. If your partner is not on board. It's just not fun. Right. It's it's not worth it. So she signed off on, on, the, uh, on the house. She signed off on the boat. The smartest thing I did in my relationship was when we were dating, I taught her to drive a stick. Right. So the Jeep is a stick, the BMW is a stick, and whatever replaces that car is going to be a stick, and she couldn't be happier. Yeah, my, that. my wife can drive a stick. She had a You st- have to, because one day you'll be drinking and somebody <laughs> has to get you home. Or you Uber. <laughs> well, that's the other option, but then you're leaving your car that's in some restaurant or bar. Can't that have- was literally my thinking. I, I, I said to her, I like a stick. Trust me, you'll learn to like a stick. But one day, listen, it's It's happened. half the fun of driving. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I could digress about automobiles over and over again. I the five series BMW. If you've ever driven one, I think they're pigs. That's just my opinion. <laughs> Outside of the M5, right, right. But about ten years ago, maybe it was closer to fifteen years ago, we were gonna buy a 528 with a stick, and it was one of the nicest driving cars. We drove it. We went home. We made an offer. It was accepted. The next day, the guy's wife hit a pole. That was the end of the car. But literally. That was just a beautiful car. And my wife says, I love this car. I never liked the 5 Series. This drives like a dream. And the difference is, you know, the floaty automatic versus a proper... (laughs) Versus a proper three-pedal car where you're controlling the power band. You're controlling where... uh, Now, where you are, you're not that far from Lime Rock. You should get up to that... We have gone up there. Not to race, but... No, I mean to to do the either the advanced driving classes or put in some laps... It's ridiculous amounts of fun, and you come away feeling like I'm a much better driver now because I right. know I know what I'm doing. All right, so it's way after six thirty. I know you have to take a train home. Eventually, my train just left, so I'm good for another forty five minutes. <laughs> um, any other subjects that we haven't touched on that are relevant to? the three or four listeners who are still hanging around at this point. They have to get and, uh, a, a prize or a war- reward. That's right. Anybody who's listened this far, send an email to to tweet me or Jonathan Miller, either at Jonathan Miller or I was even clever, I'm at Ritholtz. Right. And and we'll we'll arrange some special prize for people who have- Or at least you'll have our respect. Toughed out You'll for have two our hours. respect and admiration and, for listening to and us. And that's got to be worth worth something. Did we did we leave anything out? Have we pretty I much think, left any I rocks? think there is nothing left on the carcass. So I'm, again, I started out by saying this is a little different type of podcast where I'm not going to just put out a list of questions. We're just going to kind of- I don't want to say wing it, but have broad topics and and very Larry David like improv. You know, <laughs> curb is an improv, but it's it's loosely defined, and the actual dialogue itself is within the framework is pretty improv and and 
I think we we kept this fast and loose. Yeah, this is fun, Barry. I, I don't know if I can. I'm going to be able to do this with Muhammad Alarian or somebody else like that. I think I have to be a little more structured like that. But uh, by the way, if if you guy, if the listeners, the both of you guys who are still left listening, <laughs> if you go to dinner with Jonathan and, and myself and our wives, this is pretty much the conversation. Dinner, con- it's it's boats and houses and real estate and yep. cars. Uh, other than the food, and we actually we, we have some Bloomberg sponsored um, Ike and Mike's. Yep, uh, this this is pretty much it. So I want to thank you again for doing this. Yeah, thank and, you, Barry. This and, is fun and being so generous with your time. Um, so to to reiterate for for those people who want to find Jonathan's research and work, in addition to Douglas Elliman, you'll see it at Jonathan Miller on Twitter or at MillerSamuel.com. Correct. And the blog and the podcast it's are all, it's all irregularly on... all showing up at millersamuel.com. Correct. I would be remiss if I did not thank my recording engineer, Mark, my producer, Charlie Vollmer, and today my head of uh, my head of research, Michael Batnick, uh, got the day off because this was a less deeply researched than usual uh, podcast. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Michael Bloomberg is the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.